0: Well, here in Revelation 3, we've got the the letters of the Lord continuing to some of these Ecclesias, and it leads on into chapter 4, and I say it leads on into chapter 4 because quite a few of the rewards for faithfulness if you've got uh, at the end of each of these little letters here in chapter 3, we then find those rewards being alluded to in the heavenly vision of chapter 4. But before we go and have a look at that, I want to just remind us of something that I said when we spoke about Revelation 1 and 2, that I suggested then that Revelation is talking about the situation in the lead-up to AD 70. And I suggested that on the basis of how the seals, etc., particularly from Revelation 6 through to 9, are all alluding to connecting back to the Olivet Prophecy. And I suggested that the Olivet prophecy was uh, an outline of the situation that would lead up to uh, the situation of, of AD 70, in the three and a half years that Jerusalem was surrounded, really, before the final uh, fall of the city in AD 70. And I suggested that the Olivet prophecy seems to imply that Jesus would have come at that time, but he didn't, because various preconditions were not fulfilled could have been the repentance of Israel. The gospel didn't really go into all the world, and therefore the end could not come. could have been lack of spirituality amongst the believers. And so Revelation has that same kind of approach, that on one level it is a description of three and a half years' um, tribulation in the lead up to AD 70, and yet because for whatever reason the Lord didn't come then, it has been deferred to our last days. And the connection between these letters that we've got in chapters 2 and 3 and the rest of the, uh, of the prophecy uh, is not only verbal. In other words, there are words and phrases that are found in those letters and, and the themes of um, persecution and endurance to the end. Uh, and those words and phrases and ideas continue uh, into the, the actual visions of the book um, it's not only in that, that the relevance of those letters is that they are I think as it were positioning us as the believers that the seven churches are effectively the community of believers in the last days as they were in the first century in the last days of AD 70 and so they are in the last days as it were uh, of our times. And that's why these letters are so relevant. And there's, I- Here in chapter 3 uh, uh, particularly the beginning here he talks in uh, verses well verse 2, be watchful be watchful uh, and strengthen what remains which is about to die. The idea of being watchful is again very much an idea of the Olivet Prophecy. It's all through Uh, Mark 13, in fact, there's no fewer than six references sorry, seven references in Mark 13 in the Olivet Prophecy as Mark records it, to being watchful and so Jesus is saying that the community of believers in the last days have got to be watchful this church in Sardis was in a sense like all of us in the last days, and he says if you're not watchful verse 3, then I will come upon you as a thief. Now this is again very much the language uh, of the parables that close the Olivet Prophecy or that come at the end of the Olivet Prophecy 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2 about how the coming of Christ will be like a thief to the unworthy in the latter day Ecclesia. So these letters are really very relevant to us who are living uh, in the last days. Now, I started off by saying that there's quite a few uh, connections between the the vision of chapter 4 of the the heavenly glory of the 24 elders and the the language used in these letters about the reward of the faithful. Now, chapter 3, verse 4, at the end, the reward is to walk with me in white, in white linen. Just as Jesus, uh, uh, of course, is uh, pictured in, in Matthew's account of the resurrection in, in Matthew as being in, in white, white clothing. So they're going to be dressed, or we're going to be dressed in white linen. Verse 11, don't let anyone take your crown, they will have a crown. Uh, they will be within the temple of God. Verse 12, and in verse 21, Jesus says, and you will sit with me in my throne. White clothing, crown, in the temple of God, and seated uh, with the throne uh, on the throne or around the throne of of Jesus. Now, when you come to chapter four, he says in verse one that he's going to show John that which shall be in the future, and he sees a vision of Jesus on a throne in heaven. In verse 4, round about the throne were twenty-four thrones. Seats in the AV as uh, thrones in the Greek and most versions. And there's twenty-four elders sitting on those thrones, verse 4, clothed in white garments, and on their heads crowns of gold... And clearly, this is a temple scene. This is the the temple that is, as it were, in heaven. We said, uh, talking about Revelation one and two, that one of the themes of Revelation is that whatever's going on here on earth is reflected in the heavenly uh, courtroom, uh, as it were. So then, the rewards that the faithful are promised in chapter three. We now see a vision of the faithful in chapter 4 actually having those rewards. And yet, reading this through, it would appear that this chapter 4 is actually talking about the angels now. There's some evidence for thinking that these 24 elders are 24 uh, sort of groups of uh, angels right now, because I mean, he he saw this right up in heaven at, at this moment. And yet, in another sense, this is a picture of the the faithful, that's us, in the future. Because we shall be made like angels, we shall in that sense take over their role, and even more gloriously. So then, these 24 elders are all those who overcome. Now the idea of 24 elders, this is... uh, I think based on the, the 24 orders of, uh, of priests, which there, there was in, in the first temple. That's why you have here a, a temple scene. And the bit that I really like is that in verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him that sits on the throne, and worship him that lives forever and ever, and shall cast their crowns before the throne, saying, you are worthy. O Lord, to receive the glory and the honour and the power. Now, what does it mean to, to throw your crown down? To throw down the crown was to say, I don't want to be king. I'm not, this is not for me. They throw their crowns down before the throne. It's really saying, I am not worthy. You have given me this reward, but I am not worthy. And that's why they say, they throw their crowns down, and they say, verse 11, you are worthy. In other words, they're saying, we're not worthy, but you are. Now, I think that's beautiful. Because, really, can you imagine yourself, at the day of judgment, we come before the Lord, and in the parable, Jesus says that he's going to say to the The faithful, well done, when I was hungry you gave me something to eat, when I was thirsty you gave me something to drink, you came and visited me in prison. And they are going to say, no we did not. Now, that's an amazing idea really, that before Jesus, at the day of judgment, you would actually argue back with him. That you would actually say to him, no, you've got it wrong, I didn't do that. sorry, Lord, this is a case of mistaken identity, I'm not like that at all, that's how deeply convicted we're going to be that I should not be here. This is the casting down of their crowns before the throne. That, to me, is absolutely uh, imaginable. One can really imagine that happening because the whole purpose of the day of judgment is for our benefit it's not that God doesn't know what's gone on in our lives and so he has to open a book and read about it and weigh it all up and give a decision he knows exactly everything that goes on in our lives because we are right now before his judgment the purpose of the day of judgment is for our benefit because let's, let's be realistic if there was no judgment And we simply went from how we are at this minute, as we are just right at this minute. Say Jesus comes and says, okay, right, there you are, well done, into the kingdom. And there we are, we start living forever, etc. We simply would not realize the wonder of it all. We talk a lot about the need to realize our own desperation, our own sinfulness, to realize the wonder of his grace, his forgiveness, etc., but I don't think any of us get anywhere near it as we should. And that's why we need the Day of Judgment, for our education. I think also for our education not only about ourselves, to as it were get in touch with, with yourself kind of thing, but also to understand so many other things. I think when uh, some of my brethren see, see me going into the kingdom, uh, they're going to learn an awful lot. Um, because, you know, there's some of them convinced that I, I will not be in God's kingdom. Um, and so, it is for our learning and for our education, it seems to me. And so, out of that judgment process, there comes this conviction of sin. Of, well, let's say, of unworthiness. I should not be here. Casting down the crown... And yet also the rejoicing in that great salvation that has been wrought for us. And of course, an ever deeper understanding, verse 11, you are worthy. You are worthy um, to receive all this glory and honor and power, not us. Because we throw our crowns down. It's interesting that... uh, they shall cast their crowns before the throne. you could understand that Greek tense there as implying this is done more than once. Like, they kept on throwing their crowns down, uh, as if they are sort of, uh, we, let's say, we um, will, in an ongoing sense, be, be convicted by this, this sense that I should not be here. And there's an interesting uh, insight into all this at the end of Isaiah 45, where the prophet says that, Unto me, to the Lord, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. And that is quoted, as you know, in the New Testament, and applied to the, the final day of judgment. And having said that, this is Isaiah 45, verse 23, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear, Only in the Lord shall one say is righteousness and strength. In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So, having bowed the knee in unworthiness, this is another metaphor for casting your crown, and every tongue shall swear or confess as it's translated in the New Testament, I think that confession is of our own unworthiness. And then, 24, only in the Lord shall one say, do I have righteousness and strength, if you follow the RV margin. Then we will realize what imputed righteousness is really all about. Wow, he counts me as righteous. It is only, only in the the Lord that I have this righteousness and of course how do we become in the Lord how do we have this righteousness imputed to us baptism into Christ and you see that again really taught in, here in chapter 3 of Revelation if you just get back to uh, Revelation chapter 3 um, verse 4 you have a few names in Sardis who did not defile their garments and they shall walk with me in white um, I don't think that means that they uh, kept their nose clean from any sin, because they were human, and I'm sure they sinned. So how did they keep their garments white? I think it means, rather, that they maintained their faith in the wonder of the fact that we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That, I think, is the point. When it says, at the end of verse 4, "...for they are worthy..." Well, they are worthy in the sense that we are counted righteous, we are justified, we are declared right because we are in Christ, but that that declaration is by grace. They are worthy because they are in Christ, not because they're they're so squeaky clean, because there is nobody squeaky clean, including uh, those in Sardis. So then they walked in white in this life in the sense that they believed in this imputed righteousness and they shall walk with me in white in the future and that is picked up again towards the end of Revelation in the visions of the kingdom and so all these thoughts are somewhat relevant I think to the breaking of bread because here uh, at the breaking of bread reconstructing in our own minds the the crucifixion of Jesus we come in essence to the same thing as you come to at the day of judgment that is on one hand a conviction of sin and on the other hand a conviction of his salvation a sense of unworthiness casting the crowns and yet a very deep sense that he is worthy and that therefore, because we are in him, we will be saved. And you, you see the, uh, the whole thing, uh, again, the connection between the, the letters of uh, Revelation 2 and 3 and the visions of glory. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4, as we've just said, the comment is, they are worthy. But in chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, they throw their crowns down. on the the floor, and they say, verse 11, you are worthy. We're definitely meant to make that connection. Throw down your crown, I'm not worthy, but you are worthy. And yet, chapter 3, verse 4, for they are worthy. It's all talking about imputed righteousness, that they are worthy in that they are in Christ. And this is a a wonderful thing really, um, that this is love really, to be counted right. That is, in that sense, what love is. Whereas, uh, chapter 3 verse 17 those who say I'm rich and uh, have gotten riches and have need of nothing, you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I I advise you, he says, verse 18, uh, to, to buy white clothing that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness be not made manifest. Now, that is very much talking about, again, the day of judgment. You've got, again, a connection between uh, these words in this uh, letter here to, the, to uh, Thyatira and the later Uh, vision in in chapter 16 of the rejected walking naked and they shall see their shame the the shame of the nakedness of of the rejected is going to be made apparent to all people chapter 16 verse 15 and I think you could even make the case that for the For the rejected at the Day of Judgment, their sins will be made manifest. Jesus is going to say, when I was thirsty that time, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was in prison, you never came to visit me. Whereas for the righteous, his praise of them will be made manifest. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 4, when he says, Then shall every man have praise of God. So then, unless we really feel and believe that we are counted right, then all we've got is our own nakedness. This is where faith in the implications of our baptism is so crucial. It's so, so deep that we were clothed in white. And in a sense, the only way that you don't have that any longer, and you walk naked on your own, is because you think, verse 17, I'm rich and I've got everything and have need of nothing. Now, given the persecution of the believers in the first century, I I wonder if that verse 17 does not have more implication, really, uh, about a spiritual self-satisfaction. I don't need the wedding garment. This is, again, uh, Jesus foresaw this, that the guy would turn up at the wedding Uh, and refused to take the garment that apparently it was customary to give to all the guests, a a white garment was apparently handed out to uh, all the guests, but this guy came in and said, no, I don't need that, my clothing's better, better standard than what you've given me, no thanks, I'm good, and he's thrown out. And of course, the man who didn't take the wedding garment that was offered was the guy who thought that his own clothing was pretty good, and you've got the same mentality here. In, in verse 17, as, uh, as I say, uh, they thought that they didn't need anything, but they needed desperately to get the white clothing so that their nakedness would be covered and would not be made manifest uh, to, to, to all people at the Day of Judgment through the process of rejection. you could reason from that you could infer from that that perhaps it's those who in the eyes of others are more if you like religious than others uh, for whom it's more difficult to believe in imputed righteousness for those of us who do not commit the more, shall I say, gripping and uh, public sins those of us who don't get drunk, who are not alcoholic um, who've got good marriages, who uh, are, are not on drugs and never have been, who've uh, kept our nose clean of all the, you know, the, the big five or whatever it is, uh, sins out there. I think it's for us that we have maybe a, a far harder time to really accept this imputed righteousness because the point is there's no big five sins all of us are serious sinners and this is the whole point of what's being said here far be it from us to say I have need of nothing we need desperately his covering but it's the guy who thinks that his clothing is pretty good who says no thanks I'm good I don't need your white clothing your wedding garment that you're offering me and yet we do desperately uh, I'm sure, like me, you've met many people who live really very good lives, and they, they know that they live good lives. By good lives, I mean relative to society. Not relative to God, but relative to society. And they're the very people it's really hard to persuade of the need to be baptized. And, and you understand why that is. And as with all these things, it is the conviction of personal sin which will give us that appreciation of what has been done for us, that need for the Lord, that gratitude for His sacrifice and that real zeal and thankfulness and joy and sense of abandon even uh, and release as we see the truth of what is simply and humbly represented in this bread and wine, that is our covering, our forgiveness, our total forgiveness The frank forgiveness of the parable that Jesus gave and our certain salvation.